Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. About seven months ago, I still believed that it was all legit and that God was real. I used to be a Mormon and a Mormon missionary. And now I am not a Mormon. Mormonism turned me into an atheist. You're listening to Borders. Stories about borders by the people who cross them. I'm Caitlin Pierce. On today's episode, a story of conversion. This is a special collaboration with the Arrivals podcast. My name is Nicholas Lloyd Parrott. I'm 22 years old and I'm from Australia, a little town called Jerringong, two hours south of Sydney. Growing up, you, well, I was kind of indoctrinated or um, taught that when you're 19, you go on a mission, but you have to be super spiritual and really righteous and kind of follow everything, but I never followed any of the the rules when I was younger. Um, So I never thought that I'd be allowed on a mission. And then I had felt really, really guilty about um, not following the the rules and got to a point where um, I felt like I had to, um, I guess, change my life around, which meant I had to kind of cut myself off from a lot of my friends that I was hanging out with. And then all my friends became Mormons. So I felt like because I wasn't allowed to drink or I wasn't allowed to, um, like, sleep with girls or anything like that or do anything like a normal teenager would, I became really, really obsessed with those things and got into them way too much. I had an addiction to um, some drugs and some alcohol. The church had an addiction recovery program that I went through probably three times, which didn't help. And But I kept failing all the time. And that meant that, like in my head, that meant that I couldn't go on a mission or I couldn't um, get into heaven. I remember like standing in front of the mirror, looking at myself and just hating myself. And I remember banging my head on the ground, punching myself in the face. Um, And one time um, going up to 
um, um, a little spot. It was like a lookout over a surf break that I'd go to a lot when I was young, and it was pretty high up. I remember just standing at the edge of it, just thinking that that would be an easier way out than measuring up to the kind of impossible expectations that were put on me from such a young age that I thought. Yeah, I could just stop it now, rather than dig myself deeper into a hole that I wouldn't be forgiven for. Thinking, if I keep going like this, then I'm fucked. <laughs> but if I jump, then I'm more fucked. So I just kind of yeah, sat down and um, yeah, just cried. It was both pushing me to the edge of the cliff and then pulling me away from the cliff. I didn't realize at the time that that was the problem wasn't me but it was yeah the church the church is kind of like a drug cartel where it where it it, it creates the the demand for well it creates a creates the sin by giving um, impossible expectations for people to reach which they can't so they fall they sin then they feel guilty so then they have to go to church to get absolution from that guilt. But then they'll always fail. So they're always going back and they're always feeling guilty. So it's just like this never ending cycle of um, failing guilt and depression. So I kind of moved mountains in my life to be able to go on a mission. I remember getting off the plane and I was wearing a three-piece suit, which we had to wear, and I get off the plane, and it's like I just had like a really warm shower. It was so humid, and I just got off and was like sweating everywhere instantly. Walking through the airport, there was like a group of guys playing guitar and ukulele and singing, and um, they're all guys, but they were singing like ridiculously high. They're like, like really loud and really high and I loved it. I felt like I was gonna baptize everybody and I just needed to get good at Fiji and then I'd, had every, I'd have everybody in the water baptizing them. I felt like I was gonna be really, I guess, successful. Baptism as a Mormon missionary is like the main goal it's like what everybody's after is like more baptisms and every meeting that we have is about baptizing people and like how to get them ready for baptism and people just want to run around just dunking people pretty much like because you get it you can say like i baptize this many people on my mission it's really weird it's mostly about the numbers of baptisms and like not really what it's about but just like i guess bragging rights the first ones I did were in the ocean, which were pretty cool. We had to walk out really 
far because it was low tide and we were trying to find like a like a like a dip in the sand so they could actually go all the way under and then like you stand with them put your arm up in the air and say their name and say wait this is weird remembering this but you say having been commissioned of jesus christ i baptize you in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost amen and then you'd like dunk them under and bring them up and then like you're waiting for something like crazy to happen like heavens open and a dove descends or something and it's just like nothing <laughs> you're like boom okay um yeah you can get dressed now and then like they're just like soaked <laughs> and you're standing there like uh, is there anything else that happens in this i think i physically baptized i think 12 people but i a lot of people that i taught ended up getting baptized maybe around 20 or more We were teaching this family and the, the dad or the husband was always away. Um, and then he came and he was kind of, like he showed up one time and he wasn't really impressed with us teaching his family. But then um, we sat down with him and I started kind of talking to him and got him really interested. And then he became like the most interested out of all of them. And we sat with him all the time and went through all the lessons with him. And he had a book, he'd have like a notebook with him and he'd be writing everything down that we said. and really excited to get baptized and and then I remember like like I think like four or five months later coming back to that area randomly like I got to go see them which I didn't think I'd ever see them again and he was just he, he like started crying when he saw me and um they were all like so happy to see me and they felt like I had helped them out a lot and yeah, they they still talk to me now, um, but I haven't really explained things yet to them of what's happened since. They were the best, and I, I think I ruined their life. dad sent me a, a link to some essays that the the church had released while I was on my mission and he just said hey th these are some things that the church has put out about some difficult questions that um, people get asked a lot about church history and you should have a read of it so you can help people if they have these questions I was like oh cool yeah I'll read into it so I printed off these essays and took them back to the, the flat that we had. And um, each night after the day was over, like, come home and I'd sit down and read one of these essays. And, um, yeah, I guess that was the beginning of the end. So since the beginning of the church, the church has had all its records of 
historical events that happen in the church. They'd had it like locked up in the in the archives and they wouldn't let anybody read it. And then in the I think it was the eighties, um, they they let a few um, church historians look at look at what was in the archives and write some books about it and but these guys these historians got um i guess locked down um i don't know if they got excommunicated but they got like frozen out because when they started publishing the things that they found um the leaders of the church kind of freaked out and locked up the archives again and wouldn't let anybody read them because it was completely different to what they had said this whole time about um, who Joseph Smith was or um, how the Book of Mormon was translated and all these things. And then um, when the internet was invented, everybody could read this stuff. So people were reading it and then asking questions and then getting excommunicated because um, the stuff that they were reading was supposedly anti-Mormon literature. But then it turns out that it's actually Mormon literature. So when I was reading, my dad was um, constantly giving me a way out. He said, you don't have to keep reading if you don't want to. And I just had this image in my head come up of Morpheus from The Matrix. He's just holding like two pills. It's like you either go down the rabbit hole or you like forget about it or wake up in The Matrix and just go about your life like nothing's nothing's changed and that was like the turning point I guess in my whole life was not wanting to be stuck in um, a fraud not to be stuck in the matrix so I was like yeah fuck that I want it all like send me everything that you have so I read these essays um, some really important issues that I, that came up in these essays were um, Joseph Smith was um, well he had about 40 wives before he died and 10 of them or 11 of them were already married to other people um, and he was found sleeping with a 14 year old girl um, when he was already married and um, then after that he he came up with this idea this um, revelation of polygamy where God wants um, him, wanted him to take on other wives and his wife didn't agree with it but he did it all in secret and married all these um, really young girls and and then another thing was the translation of the Book of Mormon which I had been teaching about for two years so I had been teaching that Joseph Smith had these gold plates that he found and he would read what was on the plates, but it was in a different language and it'd be translated into English by the power of God. But really, he had this seer stone that as a kid he'd used to find buried treasure and he put it in a hat and put his head in a hat and then he'd just apparently read out what was... Um, or the translation of it. So that's the real version, and the church has admitted that, oh yeah, that's the actual version, but they'd been teaching a different version for a hundred years. So it was a Monday, I got the last 
bit of information from my dad. And then I looked at my companion, Elder Farm Moy. I just went, I gotta go, gotta get out of here. I'm not doing this because it's good for me. I felt like this was something real, but it's not. So I was out. You have to wear garments, um, like the magic underwear, magic woman underwear. And I just had this moment, it was so funny, where I was like, I don't have to wear these anymore. Yes! And, like, I took them off and I was running around my flat just in, like, underwear, just, like, dancing. And I started giving away all my stuff, like, my scriptures, like, the, my Book of Mormon. Like, I was like, here you go, you can have this. And he's like, you don't want it? I'm like, I don't fucking need that thing anymore. <laughs> So it was a Tuesday. So the mission president keeps everybody's passport so they can't just bounce. Um, which now I realize is really fucked up. So we went to the, the office um, where the mission president and his wife live. And, and then the mission president came up. President Layton from Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay, if you picture, I can't remember his name, but the main guy from Despicable Me. It's like really tall, like... He used to be skinny, but now he's got, like, really fat belly, big pointy nose, and, like, bald. And, like, has his hands together like Mr. Burns. That's President Layton, but with white hair. So I go into his office, and he, he asked me what, what, what he can help me with. I said, I know that the church is a fraud. I want to get go home. I don't want to talk about it now. Just give me my passport, and I'm, I'm going. My parents know about this. I've got a plane ticket already. And he was like blown away and didn't really know what to do. I don't think he expected that. Um, he said, well, let's just start in a prayer. Like, and then he's like, I'll say the prayer. I'm like, yeah, you'll say the prayer. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. He wouldn't give me my passport for over two hours. And then I just said, look, guy, um, I've been on the phone already with the Australian High Commission or the Australian Embassy, and they know that um, there is an organization in Fiji withholding my passport from me. So I can call them. You can tell them why you're not giving me my passport. So his face kind of went like all gray and realized that um, he could be in a lot of trouble. And then he made a prediction about my, my life after my mission. He said, he said he's met a lot of people that have been excommunicated or left the church. And he said, the only way to have true happiness that I've seen is within the gospel. The only way to have happiness is in the gospel. And he said, without it, you will have divorce. You will have um, alcoholism. You will have addiction. Um, your family will fall apart. You'll have depression. You'll have all these things. I thought like I was going to go to hell or something, but I felt so good. I think I described it as taking off a hot woolen jumper in the middle of summer, just like feeling this lightness, this freedom. So I got off the plane, got to the airport and I saw my mom and she was so happy to see me. She looked really different to when I left and I just kind of walked up and hugged her for a long time and 
so my parents had been researching the church for i guess two years the time that i'd been on my mission and they had left the church six weeks before i came home and i didn't know that so i guess we all felt like refugees the feeling like we've found this out we've discovered the truth and like we need to tell other people about what we found and when we tell them then they'll realize that it's all wrong as well and they'll come out and they'll see how good life is but in reality it's much different it's more like whoa you're the devil (laughs) stay away from me yeah i had much more success converting people to mormonism than getting them out of mormonism as soon as i got home the mission president went about trying to fulfill that prophecy about tearing up my family he called my brother's mission presidents because i have two brothers that are also on missions one in auckland and one in singapore and he told their mission presidents this messed up story this warped story of why i left and what i was doing and then um, after that they didn't want to talk to me and i only just got to talk to them at christmas and then he spread word to people back at home and it got to my cousins um and they don't talk to me anymore um so he tried to yeah mess up my family just so his prophecy would come true um he did a little bit of a good job so i'm trying to reverse that at the moment i was completely lost i didn't know how to function for a few months i i lost my voice like i did couldn't talk anymore um I guess it was a combination of coming from Fiji and back to English and having lied for two years, taught people so many lies, I just couldn't trust my voice anymore and then I couldn't really talk, um, couldn't form sentences properly. I didn't feel like everybody was dumb or needed my help, but I felt like I was dumb and I needed to learn from everybody else how they live their life. So I realized that I haven't been living life for my whole life. I would say to the people that I um, helped get baptized or the people that I converted or baptized um, that I am very sorry. Um, I didn't know um, what I was getting them into. I didn't realize that, um, what I was teaching was, um, not true. I really thought that I was doing something good. Um, I really thought that I would help them. And now I realize that, um, it didn't help them that I might have made their life a little worse off and I'm really sorry and yeah they try and talk to me a lot and I don't know what to say I love them a lot it's really hard to talk to them knowing what I did yeah <sighs> oh I'm very sorry. I ask forgiveness.
was Nick Parrott sharing the story of his conversions. Nick just got back from a trip to Fiji. He went there to try to find the people he had converted and tell them about the information he had found that made him atheist. When he got home, Nick wrote to me, I've decided that I need to focus on improving my life and recovering from the lost time and not on trying to unconvert anyone else. If anyone wants to talk to me about the issues with the church, then I'm all for having that conversation. But I no longer feel the need to change anyone's beliefs. If you want to read the documents that convinced Nick to leave the church, you can find them at mormonleaks.com. Thank you, Nick, for your bravery and sharing your story. Today's episode is a special collaboration with the Arrivals podcast, spelled A-R-R-V-L-S. Thank you so much to Jonathan Hirsch for his incredible sound design in this episode. Thanks, as always, to Andy Diaz, who wrote our theme music. For more stories about Borders, visit bordersradio.org. I'm Caitlin Pierce. Thanks for listening.